0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's May the 6th, 2021. I don't want to sound too cheerful, even though I'm in San Francisco. The news, especially from the New York Times, isn't always very good. And it seems as if, uh, and I don't want to speak for everyone, but many of you are feeling blah. You are languishing. There was a very influential piece written uh, late last month by uh, the, 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 the popular culture uh, writer Adam Grant um, about uh, languishing. Uh, Grant writes in the age of late COVID, uh, Uh, It wasn't burnout. We still had energy. It wasn't depression. We didn't feel hopeless. We just felt somewhat joyless and aimless. Turns out there's a name for that, languishing. Uh, A lot of it, I think, has to do with COVID. Um, We're also warned in the New York Times that the weight industry is coming for our post-lockdown bodies. Not only are we mentally feeling blah, but physically as well. Uh, We are warned in in this weight piece, uh, Grant is quoted again, um, that in our age of insecurity and happiness, the the weight industry is taking advantage of us. So what are we going to do about it? Uh, The other side of languishing is flourishing, another New York Times columnist, Danny Bloom, tells us. Uh, And one way of um, dealing with this in terms of... uh, in terms of uh, getting out of our languishing, our blah is celebrating small things. Um, Adam Grant says the same thing, focus on a small goal to get out of this languishing, this feeling of blah. So it's appropriate today uh, that we have the author of a new book on the show, Big Little Breakthroughs, a book about big little things, ways of breaking out of uh, an absence of creativity. It's not a book specifically about COVID. It's by a guy called Josh Linkner, a New York Times bestselling author. But I think it's an appropriate book in our age of languishing. Uh, Josh, long intro. I apologize for spending so much time talking. Uh, Do you, and I know Grant blurbed your book, so he's somebody you know. Do you agree with Adam Grant's observations about the blah we all seem to be feeling in late COVID times?
1: I agree with just about everything Adam Grant says. He's a friend and he's from my hometown of Detroit uh, and a brilliant, brilliant author and researcher. Um, But I do. I think that, you know, to, to a degree, COVID has had the world hit a giant reset button and the patterns of the past have been disrupted the way we interact and lead and work and love and eat and and as a result i think many of us are feeling uneasy and, uneasy but but i do think there's an opportunity and that's an opportunity just like adam grant talks about to rethink our approach and i believe the best approach in doing so is to take sort of one small step at a time especially when taking creative bets because it de-risks the process
0: yeah you're not you're not suggesting that we have to gamble everything. In fact, one of the things I like about your new book is that um you bring up a late 19th century painting style, pointalism. Uh, pointillism. Uh, I, I I'm not probably pronouncing the French word very elegantly. Uh but it of course is the the art of uh, artists like Georges Seurat and Paul Signac, um a kind of post-expressionist uh, form of art. What what's so interesting about pointillism um Josh, in terms of the arguments in your new book?
1: Well, most people think that to be creative, it requires a lightning bolt of inspiration from the heavens. And we put so much pressure on ourselves to come up with some big game-changing idea. The stakes are so high, we gravitate to doing nothing. And in the book, I sort of flip the principles of creativity and innovation upside down. And rather than taking these wild moonshots, what about little teeny bets? And that's how I think about pointillism. Pointillism, in fact, is putting a single dot of a primary color on a page. Any one of us could do that, no problem. So the individual act is actually rather simple. But what happens is the culmination of a number of those little dots that adds up to something special. And that's exactly the way I think is a more pragmatic approach to unlocking creativity and innovation.
0: You also quote uh, the great artist Vincent van Gogh. He wasn't a pointillist, but he was associated with that school. Um, your introductory quote to your book is great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Um, But not everyone can be Van Gogh, Josh, Uh, and only a Van Gogh can bring all those small things together to create masterpieces.
1: Well, that's where I may disagree. And and the good news is that the research is crystal clear. That as human beings, we all have immense reservoirs of creative capacity. Now, we might express it in different ways. I, I play jazz guitar pretty well I can't draw a stick figure if i tried so for those joining us today you don't necessarily need to be the next vincent van gogh but you can apply creativity one little dot at a time in whatever area of life is that matters most to you and whether that's your career or your family or your community and we can express again creativity in different ways but all of us can in fact be creative the other thing that i'll say quickly uh, is hold, hold on. Often- let
0: me jump in here uh, josh you, you said that the the research is crystal clear that's always a warning sign to me. Um, what does the research tell us that everyone is a Van Gogh? You, you said earlier that the the research is clear, uh, but that always raises my suspicions. Uh, it's an enormous subject: the idea of whether we're all profoundly creative. So, tell me what research exactly you're talking about, and what exactly it tells us.
1: Yeah, and and what my isn't that we're then all gonna be world-class artists. It's just that we all are creative in our own ways. And the research, again, I can quote study after study. Harvard did a study asking the age old question, is creativity born or developed? Is it nature or nurture? And they discovered that uh, creativity is 70% learned behavior, which means that all of us have the creative potential of the artists that we celebrate. Of course, we need to develop that skill. Real quickly, in the book, I quote a couple other interesting research studies. One was fascinating to me. It was done in Italy by a university. And they took a group of equally situated people, divided them in half, as most groups are, tests are. And they each were shown a video and then asked to do a creativity assessment test. One half was shown a really boring video, like sheep's grazing in the yard. And the other half was shown a really inspiring video, like majestic cliffs and seagulls or, 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 and eagles and such. Anyway, exact same group, shown a different video, and then tested. The awe-inspired group outperformed the non awe-inspired group by 80%. And what's fascinating to me is they didn't learn a new skill in that moment, they connected to something that was already inside them. And so again, doesn't mean every one of us is gonna be a master orchestral violinist, but all of us can in fact be creative in our own ways.
0: Uh, you have lots of interesting examples in the book of of people who have taken small steps to to come up with big results. Um, beginning of your book, you talk about the musical Hamilton. What is it about Hamilton that supports your case about small little steps?
1: Well, when we think of the modern day grand master of creativity, many of us, me included. Think of Lynn manuel Miranda, the, the composer of Hamilton, and an incredibly talented musician, composer, performer, et cetera. But when we see people like that, it's very difficult sometimes to see ourselves in them. We say, oh, that person was born a super genius, and I'm not. And when, when I take on a problem, I struggle, so therefore I could never be successful. And the truth is, and I did a bunch of research on Lynn manuel Miranda, that, that he struggles just like all of us. He has good days and bad days. He grew up in a normal environment. He, he, his first pieces of, 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 co- of composition were not that spectacular, but he applied a, a set of skills and, and he looked at it as building a, a, a skill set rather than tapping into some you know incredibly powerful gift as, it, as he was born with. And so I guess the, the point I'm making is that when we see others achieving great things creatively and it doesn't come as easy to us, we believe that we're flawed or never capable of it. And the truth is that we can all grow into that capacity once again, doesn't mean you're going to compose a, a Broadway hit. But it can certainly mean that you can be more effective in the things that matter most to you, whether it's your job or your career or your company or your family.
0: Uh, most of our viewers and listeners will, of course, have heard of Lynn manuel Miranda, the, uh, the writer and author, essentially, of Hamilton, a remarkable man. Most people, though, won't be familiar with a character, another character in your book, in Restoric. I wasn't, and I was intrigued by him. Perhaps he's more of an everyday model for our everyday reader. Is that fair, Josh? True in Restoric?
1: Yeah, he's one of my favorite people. so in working on this book, I, I spent over a thousand hours in research and interviews with amazing people and I, I interviewed billionaires and CEOs and Grammy award-winning musicians. but my I have favorite to say a thousand
0: was... hours is not a lot. I'm an author. that usually takes me about a thousand hours to pick up a pen. <laughs>
1: Well, you know, it's uh, you it You must be a fast good. worker, Josh. Are you? The, well, I'm just talking about the research, but uh, I, I you know I felt like it was a good chunk of research and you know, interviews, et cetera. But anyway, so so when I look at, at Tro and Restorate, to me it's much more inspiring because he's someone we can relate to. He's not a celebrity billionaire. He's a normal dude, but he did something really special, which I really love celebrating, which is to me, he's an everyday innovator, somebody who is a normal person that applies these principles in action. So real quickly, what he did was he was uh, faced with a problem in, the, in central London uh, of cigarette butt litter. Cigarette butt litter is, is a terrible issue. It's bad for the environment. It, it costs millions of dollars to try to fix every year to no success. But Trellin did something special. He invented something called the ballot bin. And the ballot bin is this bright glowing metal box mounted at eye level. And there's a glass front with a partition. And at the top, it just asks a two-part question, such as, which is your favorite food, pizza or hamburgers? And it encourages smokers to vote with their butts. So you insert your little cigarette butt in one of those holes, it falls on top of uh, of the other cigarette butts, and it quickly shows you a tally of which of these two-part question answers is in the lead. And it's fun, and it's simple, and it didn't require a billion dollars, and it didn't require six PhDs, yet it was super effective. In fact, when ballot bins have been deployed, they reduce cigarette litter by 80%. And the reason I just love stories like his is that he, we can see ourselves in that. Any one of us could say, "Yeah, I could have done that too." And that's what this book is all about. It's helping everyday people become everyday innovators.
0: Right, and what you do, which I like, is is you break down ideas. Ideas are not things you suggest delivered from the gods. They're not just things that a Vincent Van Gogh or a Lady Gaga is is uh, is, is, is 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 lucky to to have. We can all have them. You break them down into five parts. You talk about inputs, sparks, and auditions. Very briefly, Josh, tell me about the anatomy of an idea.
1: A big part of the work, my goal was to demystify the creative process and to say, listen, it's something we can study just like chemistry. It doesn't have
0: to be so... Well, chemistry is pretty hard. I can't study that. I could spend tens of thousands of hours studying chemistry and I still wouldn't understand it.
1: Well, the point is that it's an understandable science. We can we can put a, a, a cell underneath a microscope and look at it, and it's not mythical. It's, it's something that can right. be discovered. It's concrete. I get history, it. I get it. I get
0: it. I get it.
1: So anyway, I did the same with an idea. An idea we think, again, is this magical thing. I said, all right, let's look at the anatomy of an idea. Let's dissect it. And what I decided to do is, is in looking at that, it broke it into these five individual components. The first one, I call it a spa, uh, an implant. And the input is all the things that lead up to to, to the ba- to become the basis of the idea. For us as people, that could be our training, our experience, what you had for dinner last night, the friends you hang out with, and it's all the inputs that you're bringing to the creative process. The next step is sparks. And I like sparks better than an idea, because you know when we, we're just generating beginnings of an idea, we very often, often pounce on them and extinguish them prematurely. In other words, if someone says, I have an idea, it's almost as if it is ready, it merits a uh, criticism. And a spark is more, a beginning it's a tadpole, it's a beginning. So you, it's a what if. Hey, what about this? What about this? It's not fully baked. It's just a beginning. Next in the align, we call it auditions. And auditions are basically like this. Let's say you're trying to solve a problem. You came up with 25 sparks. You say, how can I test these? And and then you might say, okay, 20 of them stink. They're no good. Let's get rid of them. But five of them merit further exploration. Let's see what we can do with those. So you refine the list. The next quick step is, is called um, refinements, where you take the ones that are you know, pretty interesting and see if you can sand off the rough edges and polish them off and get them ready for prime time. And then the final step is a slingshot. And a slingshot is sort of, how, what do you do next with this idea? Does it connect to become the uh, the input of another idea, or is it ready to actually launch into the world? And so when you take a more scientific view on this and you, you can break it down, it becomes much less overwhelming to generate and ultimately deploy good ideas.
0: So you got your idea, Josh, and then you break it down into eight obsessions of everyday innovators. So an innovator comes up with an idea and then you break it down into these these eight very um, tangible, um, uh, cute, not chapters, but cute ideas. Uh, Very briefly, what are the eight obsessions of everyday innovators?
1: Yeah, so these come from, from years and years of observation and own, my own personal experience as, as a tech entrepreneur and a venture capitalist and also a, a jazz guitarist. And these are the core mindsets or operating principles of innovative people of all shapes and sizes. And, and many of them are counterintuitive. They're the opposite of what we think. But these are the principles that any one of us can embrace to, to drive more creativity personally and organizationally. And I'd be happy to walk you through one or all of them, whatever is good for you.
0: Well, very briefly, uh, tell me, uh, there are eight um, and we have all eight on the screen at some point, but just pick two or three that you particularly think are important and interesting. Sure. Um,
1: One of them is start before you're ready. And many of us just wait. We we wait for permission or till we have a bulletproof game plan or till we have a directive from the boss. But this principle, start before you're ready, is more about taking initiative, getting going, even though you don't have the, the fully charted course. So it's a willingness to be uh, agile and, and pivot and adapt and course correct along the way throughout changing conditions. But what it does is it ma- makes sure that we don't wait too long and miss that opportunity altogether.
0: And be willing, other, I assume, to, to, to fail and to be embarrassed. Because if you stop before you're ready, sometimes you fall off your bike, right?
1: Well, there, there's a, a good way to de-risk that, which actually ties to, to another uh, uh, one of these principles, which is called open a test kitchen. And this is the principle of of embracing rapid experimentation as opposed to taking these wild swings. So if you start before you're ready, let's say you have an idea in a company and you get on a megaphone and say, here's what we're doing to everybody. We're trying this new idea. That would be to me irresponsibly risky. A, A better approach, perhaps a more pragmatic approach would be, okay, I've got an idea. How can I test it? And how can I test it as cheaply and inexpensively and fast as possible. And so if you're constantly in the state of running many small experiments, you don't really fall on your face as much. You, you you might say, hey, this experiment didn't work out, but you didn't burn down the company. So if you start before you're ready, but starting doesn't look like, okay, now I'm ready for global change. Starting looks like, how can I run a lot of concurrent experiments, discard the ones that don't work and double down on the ones that do.
0: And one final one from, uh, from the last three, I like, um... Uh, use every drop of toothpaste, your sixth rule or your seventh, don't forget the dinner mint. What are those?
1: Well, yeah, so every use every drop of toothpaste is the notion of being scrappy and resourceful. And and very often I work with large companies all around the world about everyone says I want to be more innovative, but I don't have enough. And then there's a fill in the blank. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough bandwidth. And and I always playfully respond that if the amount of resources that you have, external resources, equaled your level of creativity, the U.S. federal government would be the most creative organization on the planet and startups would be the least, which we know the exact opposite is true. So this is really around being resourceful, making use of every resource at hand and using your ingenuity and resourcefulness rather than relying on external resources.
0: So you get all these things done and then you say it's time to take your shot. And of course, that's borrowed from the lyrics of, of, of one of the great songs from uh, Hamilton, My Shot. What does Hamilton tell us about taking one shot, Josh?
1: Well, I know most of us have heard it, but the, the song you know, is, is Hamilton saying, I'm not going to give up my shot. He's got a shot to make a difference in the world, and he just refused to, to give it up. And, and I think we all sort of owe that same thing to ourselves. None of us want to reach the end of our days and and be filled with regret. Now, the problem with taking our shot, again, is it can feel risky. And so throughout the book, I try to explain ways to de-risk taking your shot so it doesn't feel like this overwhelming scary thing. In fact, we have to really examine what it looks like in terms of risk of not taking your shot. You know, so many of us revert to the status quo, thinking that it's a really safe thing. And that didn't work out so well for Osmobile or Pan Am Airlines. So the notion here is let's examine what not taking our shot is and, and, and explore the real risk of not doing something. And then let's find a way to de-risk taking our shot and give ourselves the, the, the beautiful, generous gift of, of going for it and, and whatever that looks like for each of us. But it's sort of like injecting creativity to drive better outcomes and the, of the outcomes that care, you care about the most.
0: Uh, Josh, uh, a few shows ago, we had the Los Angeles-based writer and journalist uh, Ron Brownstein on the show. He had an excellent new book, Rock Me on the Water, a book about the creative industries in Los Angeles in 1974. Brownstein argues that, that this was the pivotal year, the key year in the cultural history of Los Angeles, and it led the world in that year. You're in Detroit, so I'm not going to ask you about what was going on in Detroit in 1974, but are there moments in a city or a region or a country's history where creativity is stronger than others? And, and how can we explain a year like 1974 in Los Angeles?
1: I, I think there absolutely are. In fact, my hometown of Detroit is a good example. You A know, hundred years ago, Detroit was sort of the Silicon Valley of our country, and this is where wild creative ideas came to life. And then frankly, we lost our creative way. We, we got so busy administering large corporations and we start, stopped creating cool cars and, and our city crumbled. When we, when we lost our creative energy, uh, many of the, the problems that we in, endured were, were a direct byproduct. I will say that right now the city in Detroit is this magical renaissance, uh, new restaurants, new energy, new buildings. And, and I think it's partly because we as a, as a community reconnected and are creating the future rather than, than clinging to the past. And so there are absolutely, in, in cities and, and countries even, uh, ebbs and flows throughout history. And I think some of the darkest times, whether it's Detroit or Los Angeles or other places, are, are truly marked when we get into the sense of, of fear and protectivism and scarcity, and we let our creativity down, and there, therefore many of, the, many of the byproducts are, are problematic.
0: Well, you mentioned Detroit, uh, and, and I buy your point about there being a degree of a renaissance, but I, I looked for news before this interview about Detroit. And the first thing that came up was uh, in the local newspaper in Detroit, shootings leaving one man dead, two in serious condition. Now I know that this is not necessarily typical, but I, I think it would be wrong to compare Detroit in 2021 to Renaissance Florence. Um, is 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 Detroit really going through uh, a profound renaissance? I know there are reasons to be cheerful, but there are also many reasons to be very depressed about Detroit and indeed the deindustrialized areas of the of the United States, especially the Midwest, the Upper Midwest.
1: Um, yeah, I, I don't think so. I, I think it actually really is more equivalent to a, a Renaissance. Now, in any Renaissance, there are dark moments. I'm sure there were people beheaded in, in you know previous Renaissances and, and certainly we have some crime in Detroit as 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 there exists in, in every major city around the world, but I, I can look at just the data. I mean, right now, you, you know, residential occupancy is at an all-time high in downtown Detroit. Buildings that were crumbling and, and unoccupied are now filled with waiting list for office space. The local economy is generating way more taxes. Uh, shootings and, and, and violence are down dramatically over the last 10 years. The tax base is up. So when you look at, at the, the metrics, we're absolutely heading in the right direction. Furthermore, speaking of renaissances, you know, we were a one-industry town. The entire city was was centered around the automotive industry. Today, we have a booming financial sector industry. There's mortgages. To the two number one and number two mortgage country companies in the United States are in the Detroit area. There's a tech company we, that we funded that is now worth three point eight billion dollars. So, I again, we're it's not utopia to be clear. There's a long way to go, and but we are making meaningful progress, and and we are directionally headed uh, in, in in an area that I think is actually very exciting.
0: Josh, you talk about Detroit as a place which is in the process of reinventing itself. I think you're right. And it's certainly doing an interesting job. You're somebody who has perpetually reinvented your, yourself. You're a, a writer, an entrepreneur, an investor, a public speaker. Uh, how, how do you personally keep it going? Where do you get your energy? Uh, you obviously didn't read your own book your the book in part i assume comes from your own life and lifestyle and thinking what is it about josh linkner that makes him uh so able to invent and reinvent himself
1: well first i'll say that i also stumble and fail just like everybody and you know when the the trap is when we look at somebody who's enjoyed success we think that they never get it wrong and therefore when we get it wrong we think we're, we're 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 shameful about it and so i by the way have screwed up a bunch of stuff, and I'm sure I will continue to do so. What's your biggest what the- screw-up?
0: What, what are you most proud of as a screw-up?
1: <laughs> we don't have enough time for them all. But, you know, again, I started an idea you know, five years or so, six years ago. And the idea was to be sort of the Coachella of business and have this, like, rock star type event for business icons like, you know, Magic Johnson and Jessica Alba. And, and it was this beautiful event, and people loved it. It was ac- economic disaster. So I've had my share of, of setbacks, but I, the answer to your first question, I will just say this, that I've had a, a, a principle, and I used to say it so much at my company when I was building it that people were sick of me saying it. The principle is just this. Someday a company will come along and put us out of business. It might as well be us. And so I've embraced that same principle personally. So I believe every six months, some new version of me is going to come along and put me out of business. It might as well be me. And so it's it's sort of a disdain for the status quo, coupled with a hunger for reinvention.
0: Reinvention has also been a perpetual theme on our show. We had Jonathan Taplin, who was Bob Dylan's uh, uh, manager, a tour manager in the early 1960s. He's written a wonderful book called The Magic Years. And when I asked Taplin what made Dylan Dylan, he said it was the ability to reinvent. And in Taplin's book, he also quotes Peter Drucker, the great business analyst, I'm sure you're a big admirer of him who said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. You are both a strategy and a culture writer. Would you agree with Drucker on that?
1: I do, because um, your your cultural underpinnings are really who you are. And that's something that will sustain the ups and downs of cyclical strategies and certainly daily tactics. You know, Culture is the fundamentals of who you are. In fact, uh, if I were starting a brand new company today, I wouldn't start thinking so much about my product what we do, I'd really focus first on who we are. And, and again, those, those eight principles that I cover in the book, those are very much the under, under, the cultural underpinnings of innovative teams and organizations. So I totally agree that that culture, especially by the way, the one that, 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 that creates a, 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 a safe playground for creativity. I really think that leader's job number one these days to cultivate the creativity of one's team. You know, I believe that, think about this, if, if right outside your home in San Francisco, you had an oil well, it was all yours and it was worth a billion dollars, you'd probably tap into it. You wouldn't ignore it. But if you're a leader running an organization and you have untapped potential, the the creative resources of of the vast majority of your team, wouldn't it be a shame if you didn't equally tap into it? And I think, again, that's our responsibility to create a safe culture, a culture that creates optimal conditions to nourish and deploy human creativity.
0: Well, if you're still feeling the blah, then uh, I don't know what I'm going to do because Josh Linkner... Is in many ways, I think, an excellent antidote uh, for our feeling of languishing in the late days of COVID. But in all seriousness, Josh, there are going to be people watching this and they're going to be saying, Yeah, I kind of get what he's saying. uh, But this is such a big thing, and he's got eight rules and five rules and this and that. I just got to figure out a way to start. I want to get off the couch. So one role, Josh, to get the person who still believes that they have that creative spark that can write the book or start the business or create the, 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 the wonderful piece of art, one thing to get them off the couch, to get them going.
1: Yeah, you're exactly right. And what we're, you know, we're talking about these topics very quickly, but they're actually really simple and really fast to deploy. But one thing to jump, jump off the couch, uh, I would do this. Um, take two minutes, literally two minutes, that's it. Spend one minute guzzling inputs, which you know they always say in software engineering, you want to change the outputs, you got to change the inputs. Spend one minute just absorbing the creativity of others. Watch a YouTube video of a musician or stare at a piece of art or read a poem out loud. Then for your second minute, do creative jumping jacks. Take any problem in the news, just grab the newspaper. What's one problem that's going on? Don't try to solve it all at once. Instead say, what are five teeny tiny ways that could make a teeny tiny difference? And so when you challenge yourself to not think big, but think small, between the inputs and the outputs, your creative juices start flowing,
0: your energy goes through the roof. Well, I managed to do this interview without making any dirty jokes about big little breakthroughs. Um, It's an excellent book, How Small Everyday Innovations Drive Oversized Results by Josh Linkner. He is as energetic and innovative as the book. He's in Detroit, Uh, Josh, in addition to your book, which everyone needs to read if they want to get off the couch, what else should people be reading in these strange days to give them a bit of energy or perspective?
1: Like you, I'm an avid reader, and I read two really good books I'd recommend recently in the last couple months. Um, One is, you mentioned Adam Grant. He has a new book called Rethink. It was fabulous. Not only is his writing beautiful, it was well-researched and very thoughtful. And the second one I'd recommend quickly is from my good friend John Acuff. Uh, a New York Times bestselling author wrote a book called soundtracks and soundtracks are the things that we play in our head, whether they're negative soundtracks that hold us back or positive ones that drive us forward. So check out soundtracks by John Acuff
0: and rethink by Adam Grant. We'll have to get them both on the show. Josh Linkner, honor, pleasure. Good luck. Keep well, keep innovating. And we'll have you back on to get us off the couch and become uh, effective creators in the early 21st century. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.